Hello, everybody. My name is Christopher Thomas Blank. My name is Ross Farshtick. And welcome to the Resties, where the rest of the best discuss the best of the rest. This week, we've got two fantastic games to tell you about. We've got Dredge, and we've got Octopath Traveler 2. But before we dig into that, you you apparently have something to tell me. Well, it's not me, actually. It's you. It's This is all about you, Chris Plant. Oh, no. You are the proud owner, I guess, writer of what might be the greatest Kirby interview I've ever read. Oh, okay. I so, think this is Cri- good. Yeah, it's good. I, I, I'm being genuine. Uh, Kirby, uh, Chris Plant visited, <laughs> uh, Chris Plant visited GDC uh, this past week. The and, Game Developers Conference. Yes, thank you. The Game Developers Conference. And and had the privilege of speaking to, correct me if I'm wrong, two of the uh, minds behind our lovable pink character, Kirby. Yeah, the two lead directors of like basically all the recent games. And so if anyone would know some of these questions, that it would be them. And you went right at them with some pretty hard-hitting shit. Um, I believe one of them involved cutting Kirby in half and what would be on the inside. Is that fair to say? Yeah, the answer is dreams. Dreams was a <laughs> dreams. <laughs> um, and I also uh, really enjoyed, and I realize this is credited to Megan Froknamesh, um, the question of what would happen if Kirby, what was it? Swallowed a very swallowed attractive a hot man. man. What, a hot if, man. What, well, it's... If Kirby swallowed a hot man, would he turn into or take the shape of a hot man? Mm-hmm. And yeah, and, the, and it seems like the answer was that he would his body would basically be more muscular, but he would still retain the Kirby face. Yeah, he would still be round, and then he would be very strong, and he would have like a hot man hat. I, yeah. I, I honestly, this is like bad journalism. I should have asked a follow up question of what exactly is a hot man hat. Right, exactly right. right? Um, I think like a barbell like bent over his head like uh, Steve Martin's arrow would be my guess. Yeah, I also wasn't quite sure how how a hot man translated. Uh, um, sure. Because it did sound like the translation was the like a, an English to Japanese version of macho man. Oh. And I was like, well, that's interesting, but I don't know if a macho man is... Not a- exclusively hot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Though, but maybe like you know, in their world, Macho Man Randy Savage is like the pinnacle of you know masculinity. Mm, you know, a lot of people believe that actually. That's true. That's true. They like to snap into a slim gym. I, I do want to say that the last uh, aspect of the interview that I really appreciated was asking the es- existential question of where do the creatures go after oh. Kirby swallows them. That was my favorite answer. Yeah. Because I did not expect it to be, it seems like they had had this pretty clearly established on like a lore Bible somewhere. Yeah, What? right. So tell the people what exactly happens. So the answer is that Kirby swallows a a creature, right? And then he absorbs their powers and then like spits out like a little poof for a star, right? And it disappears. And you would think like, oh, they died. They did not die. They effectively teleported to somewhere else in the world randomly. Yeah, and I, 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 I this is not included in the interview because it's kind of like hard to transcribe because you know like you're communicating during pantomime. But I was like, kind of did like a pantomime of like, oh, like being very confused, and then it was just everyone like me and both directors pretending as if we had been transported somewhere we were unfamiliar with <laughs> and being very disoriented. And it went on for like a good minute. And then uh, the translator kind of got us back on track. Well done. Thank you. It was, That's it was a extremely good funny. Uh, thank you for filling us in on that incredible interview. Please read it. It's on Polygon.com. But uh, yeah, I think we should hop into it. Yeah, let's go talk about Dredge. Okay, so first up, um, we have Dredge, which we both played. I, yes. I think I was the only person who played Octopath. Yes. Which is fine. <laughs> I, I, I understand a hesitation there. And I, I watched gr- video of Octopath for what yeah, it's Yeah, and Griffin has been playing it too, so we'll probably talk about it a few times yeah. over the coming weeks. Um, it has eight different start points, so, you know, we could talk about it forever. But sure. Dredge is one of those games that, I don't know about you, but when I saw the pitch for it, I thought, this is a the most resties ass game, maybe ever. 
Yeah, um, pretty much. The the pitch is, what if you had a a fishing game that I guess it would kind of like a like you. UK Isles area or 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 off the coast of like Boston. I don't know how those two things feel the same to me, but for some reason they do. Yeah, and there's like a New England vibe too. Yeah, it, I which, guess more New England, which, which ties yeah. to it's a fishing game, but on the periphery is Lovecraftian horror. Yeah. And the deeper you go into the game, the more you upgrade your ship, the more you get the sense that something is a little bit off. Yeah. Um, I, I, I want to take a step back for a second and mm-hmm. say, you know, there's a lot of talk about E3 going on right now and whether it's like fully dead. But when I think back to E3, weirdly, it t- although there have, have been some pretty fantastic memories from E3, it tends to be kind of a depressing time as someone who loves video games because the hit to miss ratio of like stuff I'm super interested in versus not tends to be very low. I'm contrarying that to what we're experiencing now, which is the my high point of video games, which now is here's this game I didn't even know existed as of a week ago. And I hear a little bit of people starting to talk about it and we get code mm-hmm. and we try it out. And instantly this game has leapt to like one of my favorite games of the year. Without a doubt, I am like so pumped to talk about this game. And I think everyone's going to really, really love it. This makes me so happy because so reviews of this aren't universally positive. That's true. But that that is something that we love. We're a big fan of the 7.5 out of 10s, not saying that. I got to be real. Is. I haven't read I haven't read the other reviews. I sure. think they are on crack. I'm sorry, well, but like I don't I, know I, what they're complaining about, but I think this game is fantastic. I think it's I think it's very easy to guess what people do not like about this game, which is, is it too woke? Yeah, that, that's what it is. Our, our buddy Tucker has been writing all these reviews. Um, no, it, it's that it's a fishing game. Right. I, like, I think if, if you had just seen the trailer or just seen the screenshots, you might think like, oh, I bet there's a, like a lot of time spent early on. That we're digging right into that Cthulhu nightmare, right? Cosmic horror. And this game is very comfortable being like, actually, no, I... We really like fishing. And, and we, honestly, like, that's what I liked about it. Yeah. The only thing that, like, like lands from an intro standpoint for me is, A, how little setup, setup there is. Like, you're in the boat fishing within five minutes. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. And, B, how they are, like, very smart about weaving in the uh, cosmic horror stuff insofar as, like, it's not specifically shoved into your face it like just starts to be like little little whispers of it little edges of it and slowly you understand that like the whole game has this like baked in but it's it's very subtle and smart yeah well i mean it, it it's playing by the rules of good cosmic horror right not that everything needs to follow a structure and rules but it's doing it very well which is to say i mean two critical parts of cosmic horror lovecraftian horror whatever you want to call it are the sense of gradually going mad, that you're yeah. gradually losing your slip on reality, right? And for that to happen, you have to have a very mundane reality to slip away from. Right, you need a contrast. Yeah, and you need to establish it. And that 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 change needs to be very slow. The other thing that you need is the idea of the unknowable, right? Like that's what's special about this type of horror is that you can't look directly at it, that you can't really entirely conceptualize it. And... So what I really, really like about this game is you go out during the day and you go fishing, right? And there's a, there's a clock, you know, you're on a 24-hour cycle. And as the day goes on, you, uh, the, you know, the sun sets and the night comes. And at first, you, you have, like, what, a candle on your ship to yeah, try like to a create little, some light? Yeah, like a little light, yeah. tiny little light. Yeah. And it can easily go out. And once that happens, you can only see, I don't know, maybe like a couple meters in front of you. And by see, I mean both it's like literally hard to see, but also things like rocks that you could crash on, they they quite literally don't materialize until the very last second. And you can see them kind of materializing in front of you. It's yeah. very eerie. And then there are also um, like pillars of light in the distance, like a really blood red, kind of almost plasma-like light or there are these like whirlwinds of of evil. <laughs> I don't know. They're, they're like they're non um, 
they don't take on human shape or any creature shape. They they kind of take almost on like a fog. Yeah. Uh, and and I th- I just thought that was so again clever and them really knowing and loving the 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 genre that they're playing with. Yeah. So there's a whole system as it as as night sort of descends. There's a whole I guess terror system. Of, you know, like your fear level where the higher it is indicated sort of by an icon at the top of your screen, the more fucked up incidents will happen. So maybe you'll start seeing rocks that you didn't, that aren't normally there. They just like exist because you're like losing your mind and you could like actually crash into them. Um, so you can't necessarily like follow the normal paths they're used to following. Um, there's some crazy shit I don't even want to spoil, but here's a little one is you'll see another boat. You'll like <laughs> like see another boat sh- cruising around and, and you don't see any other boats. So it's very weird. And I genuinely, without even thinking about it, started to be like, I'm going to go after that boat. Like yeah. it didn't even occur to me that there might be something else going on. And I went after the boat and there was a huge fucking fish that fucked me up so quickly that it wasn't even funny. And it was like one of those angler fish that have like the lure on it. Yeah. And it was just like messing with me. And the world is full of like crazy twists. Surprises. Like Little surprises that I don't, again, I don't even want to spoil. Um, so freaking cool. There's a horn on your boat that I don't even know what it does. Like it makes a horn noise, like whatever. But I don't, from a gameplay standpoint, I don't know what it accomplishes. Yeah. But I just like messed around with it once. And in the fog, I heard the horn pattern that I had just played, like no. played back at me. No. As like an echo. Yeah. It was freaky. <laughs> so uh, uh, on top of all of this, I there's a reason it's a fresh stick game, I think. Yeah. And that yeah, is, okay. I'm it curious has, what you think. Uh, along with all of this other stuff, yes. it has two things it has it has um the resident evil for um what is it like inventory management yeah grid-based inventory management where you're like rotating various like tetraminos to fit inside a very limited amount of space yes and i think it is an improvement upon the resident evil 4 one which i can i I think so too because i've played that game so it's like it's not a traditional like box or rectangle shape it's a, it's a little bit of an unusual shape, and all the different things that you catch, they have increasingly unique shapes to them. Yeah. So, yeah, Tetramino is, is much closer in that, like, they really want you to kind of scratch your head and think about how you can fit everything in. Yeah, um, like a, a cod is like an L shape, but you might find an eel that's like a crazy S shape, and to, like, get everything in there... In addition to like, you need to carry a rod and the rod takes up space in your inventory. And it's like, it is really interesting and thoughtful. And then there's also the kind of, I guess, Metroidvania or really just, I guess, gear gating uh, throughout the world of, oh, you need to go into this area, but you need to have this type of rod to be able to catch fish. Or you need to find a way to blow up rocks to get into this little uh, canal. And that I, I feel like that is your ideal type of progress in a video game. Well, actually, it's even more vague than that because so there is an intended way to play through the game. You sort of start in a, like an opening area and it does gently guide you towards another set of islands, which are kind of nearby, but do require crossing like a big ocean expanse. And I totally missed that gentle nudge. Like I didn't even see it. And I was like, mm, I'll just go here. And I went to a totally different spot of the map, which I later learned was like one of the last areas you're supposed to go to. (sighs) And it was extremely hard, like much harder than anything I experienced thus far, which makes sense. And yet I was still able to, quote, complete that area. Like each area has its mysteries and little mini quests and stuff like that. Yeah. I was able to complete that area. So it's not gear gated per se. There are, plan is right. There are rods that you need to like catch certain kinds of fish. But you could really go in any order you want. Like, there's really not a lot that's limiting you. And the whole map is, like, no loading, like, giant open world, Wind Waker-esque in that way. Um, Well, and and one of the clever things with the map is, at first, it seems like, oh, you have this central island. So it's Archipelago? Archipelago? Yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> sure. I say it. One of those. But yeah. You, you, it feels like, oh, I have my central island and this is my home base. And these are the people who gave me this ship to use because my original one broke. And when I say gave me, I mean like put you into like servitude to pay off a debt. Yeah. Um, it's very Tom Nook. Yes. Uh, and it feels like, oh, I, I go out, I maybe go to another island, I come back. And then after, I don't know, probably like an hour or two, it, it, it really struck me of, oh, no, if I, if I want to accomplish these things, I need to start basically island hopping, where I travel from maybe between two islands over the course of a day and then go to sleep, like actually rest up at another island. And, and not all the islands are the same. So like there's some where, hey, th- this is a great spot to trade or this is a great spot to upgrade your ship or this is you know where you go when you want to turn in a certain type of item. They're like special um, artifacts that I guess you can collect. And once that got going for me, when I got further and further away from home, there's something really unsettling about that. When you have that first two hours to establish, oh, this is my home base. This is a kind of a scary game a little, but like this is really comforting. And then to just be like, well, now I'm docking in a harbor that this is my first time here and everybody here seems super creepy. Yeah. I don't know if what this is going to do to my ship or my character. Um, yeah, it, it has a real sense of adventure in that way. Yeah, it's very exciting and and mysterious. And, and even outside of the like main four other like island areas that there are, there's like mini islands in between and you'll find like shipwrecks or like mini quests or I found a, I guess it was like a little idol thing and it just like was like had a picture of a bunch of fish on it and a bunch of slots that were there and the fish kind of looked like the cod, the like L-shaped cod that mm-hmm. I had found and the point of it was to find like five or six cod and like carefully slot them into this puzzle of cod whatever and it and it ended up like rewarding me like a bonus um rod that i could then use so the game is filled with these like little moments that are just really clever and i think it's like paced extremely well and it's also from a scale standpoint like it's just very smart like it doesn't uh overstay its welcome i think it's just structured in a really smart way yeah let's let's dig into that because we were texting about like scope and yeah what this game does well. And I, I'm curious if you'd kind of talk about that. Yeah. I, you know, when, when we say scope or game, when you hear the word scope and game development, um, a lot of it has to do with like realistic, uh, levels, uh, numbers of features and levels and whatever weapons, stuff like that. Uh, we talked about the, uh, double fine documentary recently, uh, scope was like a huge part of that project. And part of the reason why it ended up being a six year project when originally it was, whatever, three or four years um, is because it's very difficult to say like, no, we can't do this because of the scope, because of the budget, we need to move on and maybe we'll do it as a DLC or sequel or whatever. And in this game has an incredible sense of scope, I think. Yeah, I think so too. So, I mean, the examples here, you know, when you meet characters, you're not meeting 3D models. It just cuts to kind of the, um, I guess, like Hades is a good comparison. Yeah, it's it's like hand-drawn, but in a very unique art style. Yeah, and the the, the actual art itself, it's not quite low-poly um, or like low-polygon, but it's it's not hyper-detailed. Yeah, like the 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 geometry of of these like of the ship and the islands that you're going to are are very 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 simple. Yeah, and I don't know if that's a scope thing necessarily. I think that might just be an art design thing, but it totally works for both, honestly, because it, it is something that you can with a small team. I think this team was four people, something around there. Yeah, you can with a small team like scale that in such a way that like you aren't spending five years or however long um, making just assets for a game. Yeah, well, I think that's what's interesting about the idea of a scope, right, is you can do it very intentionally. Like, who knows? Maybe when they started the game, they said, you know, this is about as high detail as we want to get, you know? Yeah. Or you can stumble onto it where they're like, well, this is a cool art design. And along the way, you realize, well, this also benefits us because we don't have to spend nearly as much time, you know, building every little detail of every ship. I think it's especially important that you have a really simple art design for this because, like you said, you are upgrading your ship, um, which I, I haven't gotten super far. I don't know how much it visualizes 
Um, it doesn't really, uh, the ship itself doesn't dramatically change. I mean, the light obviously will be a bigger light yeah. and stuff like that, but there's not really like a huge visual difference on the boat itself, which honestly is fine because the feel of it, you know, if you, as you get later, you get like be better engines and stuff like going like three times faster than you did at the beginning of the game is like a huge difference from a feel standpoint. Yeah. So it didn't necessarily bother me that it wasn't like Diablo in terms of custom, uh, customizable visuals. Yeah. Th this is one of those games that I would be very into maybe a B segment of Orestes, you know, a few months from now doing a full spoiler thing and talking about where it goes and I encourage everybody who's listening to like give it a try. Before we, we wrap up on this though, can you talk a little bit about like the early signs of the weirdness, like the type of fish that you're catching and stuff and how, oh, how yeah. the game reacts to that? Yeah, it's so you when you're fishing and, and this tends to happen at night, you'll um, you'll go and you'll like go to fish like cod, let's say. And sometimes there's like a little like haze above where you normally fish cod, a little like creepy otherworldly thing. And as you're fishing, occasionally you'll get just like a mutant cod, like a cod that has three eyes or a cod that's glowing or something like that. And the game will be like, oh, that's weird. And then you'll like take it back to the, the fishmonger and the fishmonger will be like, oh, huh, I'm kind of into this. Okay, yeah, bring me more of these. And you get paid more for those like weird fish. And it just like furthers this idea that you are the only quasi sane although you're slowly losing that person in this environment because everyone else is like kind of super into the fucked up stuff that's happening in this world just really really smart and cool and yeah yeah i like it a lot um i i think we should probably hold there because i i yeah i think anything else we say would get into spoiler territory and not that you know spoilers are always inherently bad but with a game like this that's like a big chunk of the magic. Yeah. Um, uh, so I, I will, uh, you know, not to bang the drum, but it runs perfectly on Steam Deck. It is a perfect Steam Deck game. Like, I can't it on, think. It's on Switch too, right? I'm not sure. That is a good question. Let me I just will pull that up. find out right now, and then we can talk about Octopath. I see a physical boxed copy of this game for sale on switch wow so yes it, it is on switch uh, both in download and physical uh, yeah it's also point. coming to basically everything ps4 ps5 xbox yeah though PC, i mean I, I i agree with you that portable i think is by far the way to go with this game yeah um, i hope it runs well on switch it can be a little hit or miss switch games but um yeah keep an eye out if you're interested in playing it on switch just just make sure you read reviews of that version to make sure it's kosher Cool. Do you want to take a break and we can talk about some Octopath? Let's do it. Okay, we're back. And we're going to talk about Octopath Traveler 2. I cannot believe this. I really thought this was going to be the big game that I avoided. Not because I thought it was necessarily going to be bad, but I don't like, in general, turn-based RPGs. And there's just a lot. There's so many good video games out. Yeah. And making time for... Really, anything that you think like, eh, I don't really know, let alone something that, what, is like 50 to 60 hours, it's a big ask. But everybody I know and love and trust in video games has been pushing me towards this. At first, it was people like Jason Schreier from Triple Click and Brendan Bigley, uh, sorry, not Brendan Bigley, Stephen Hilger from Into the Aether, but they're both like RPG people. Yeah. But now, like Mike Mahardy, who we work with, our reviews editor, um, has been like pushing it really hard. Like it, it's starting to, I don't know, get get some momentum away from just the uh, the RPG people. So I tried it, and the short is this game rules. Like it's it's exceptional. Um, and even though it is still turn based combat, everything that I find annoying about um this sort of game in the past, it just, I just don't feel it. I think it's a lot of quality of life things. So. Long preamble, here's the, the, the short of it. Uh, it's a sequel to Octopath Traveler, a game that I think we very briefly talked about and weren't super wild about. Yeah. Um, there are, uh, it's a big uh, open world, effectively, two, well, 2.5D RPG. It's that, that new style that Square Enix is doing where they do pixel 
worlds, but um, it it has like real time lighting and things like that. Yeah, um, the, the worlds are 3D basically, but the characters are 2D, but the worlds have, yeah, like uh, the worlds are like gorgeous. And then the contrast of that is with the 2D pixel characters is just very cool looking. Yeah, and and there are eight main characters, thus Octopath. And at the beginning of the game, you can pick whoever you want to to start the game. And you have like about, a, I don't know, an hour-long adventure with any of these characters. That's the first chapter that establishes their story. And then you're just kicked out into the world. And you can go and try to take care of whatever that story demands on your own. Or you can start traveling from city to city, finding the other main characters and bringing them into your party so that you can all work together to solve your problems effectively. It's a game about teamwork. Um, What was a trip for me is each of these characters has kind of their own RPG gimmick. And purely out of luck, the first one I picked was basically Pokemon as their gimmick. (laughs) And what luck. It it was so awesome. Um, there's this character named, I think it's pronounced Oshet, uh, who is like a wildling, a young wildling girl who's living on an island. And it has this like ancient curse uh, where, I don't know, if she doesn't collect the yada yada yadas from around the world, then the island and maybe the entire world will be destroyed. Um, she can capture any creature that she comes into combat with and then use them as like an item where they get like unleashed. So one of the first creatures that you meet is this giant iguana creature and it teaches you like, Oh, Hey, remember you can catch anything. So you catch this like screen filling creature and then on the next fight immediately unleash it. And it's absolutely devastating because that would break the game. They're like, Hey, you know what? With this first creature, you should harvest them for resources, which (laughs) teaches you the second part, which is every creature uh, that you don't want to keep you can like gut for various food items and parts. And those parts are useful because one, they keep you alive, but two, you can also meet other people in various towns and get them to join your party. So by uh, harvesting uh, critter bits, you can get say like a certain type of emblem that a certain one random character in one random town will be like, Hey, that's exactly what I want. And they'll join your party, which can be helpful for solving puzzles. It's this like overwhelming sense of everything being interconnected. I know you didn't play much of the first one, but I feel like in the first one, and this might be wrong, but this is just off memory. In the first one, you basically played through the individual stories. I want to say on their own at the beginning. I think that's, yeah. And then like after you did like four of them or something, there was like an interlude and then you like did the other four, but but they were very sort of isolated where you would just start from scratch at the end of one of them. Again, I didn't, I'm sorry, I didn't play much of the first one, which I'll, I'll discuss why in a second. Yeah. But uh, yeah, that feels like a departure that you like are in control of the first character that you recruit. Yes. To uh, recruit the other ones. I honestly can barely remember that first game. And I think yeah. that is because I remember the structure being much more um yeah. Rigid. Rigid. And yeah. the, the the characters were not nearly as likable, that the stories were thin, which is weird because I just said, you know, like you have to go collect the yada yada yadas. But yeah. I'll, I'll kind of get to why I think that works in this game versus, you know, other games like it in in a bit. Yeah, I mean, the the big thing for me, what made me bounce off the first one, and again, I'm not necessarily a fan of these games either, um, is just the writing was like, there was a lot of it, like a mm-hmm. lot of it. And it was the most like dry um, Dragon Warrior 1 level writing of like very simple, direct stories that were taking hours to get through like glacially conveyed stories yeah to the point where like when i would get to combat i was excited because the combat was pretty fun but there was so much cruft to get there that i just could not power through it yeah so so i think that's the big change here is you 
one, you, you don't have to immediately go to any of the other characters. You know, it, it's optional for when. What you would you start. do if not that? You can just start exploring the world. Um, the world is massive, and you can go in any direction. And it, maybe I'm reading the map wrong, but it seems very, very vague on where it wants you to go. Yeah, uh, I think it really does want you to create that sense of adventure of, hey, just see what you can go find. And th- there are some clever gating systems to make sure that you don't go to places you shouldn't be yet. Like you, your player has, you know, a level that increases as you go through the game. And anytime you're about to enter an area, it lets you know the level for that area. So yeah. if you're, you know, five and you come to a level that's 16, you don't want to go there. You're going to get destroyed. So that, that it, it's, it is steering you a little bit more than it necessarily pretends to be. Um, but I never found it like controlling the, the other thing with your stuff about the story is for starters, when you do meet a new character, you have the option to play their chapter and their chapter is just an hour long. So it's very short. And while the stories are like a a bit familiar, it kind of works because they don't have to spend a lot of time, you know, really setting up who these characters are. So uh, an example of the second character I met is this character named Throne, who she's like a teen or 20-something member of a thieves' guild of some sort in a really big industrialized town. And she's been sent on this doomed mission by mother and father, who are the leaders of this guild. And what you realize, and I'm, I'm going to provide like a little, little spoiler here, something that happens literally in a very early part of the game. Um, but her kind of chosen brothers and sisters of this guild, they and her have all been misled to believe that the other ones are traitors who must be killed because mother and father want the strongest one to survive and then like be the next leader of the guild. Yeah. So they've all been set against each other. And Throne in, again, this very, very, very short first chapter is the victor. And instead of taking the guild, wants to go travel the world to find and kill mother and father. Sure. And like, that's, you know, like that's really easy to follow. It's really, you know, good old fashioned melodrama, you know, like stories like that have been written since, I mean, it's almost Dickensian. Like it is, it's old fashioned and going with Dickensian, her ability, I mentioned, you know, the other one can catch uh, critters. Her ability is to pick pockets. So, she can go up to like tons of characters during that chapter and take pretty much anything from them. Um, and there are these percentages of like risk reward where that will have an impact on how she's perceived and all that stuff. Um, so yeah, I, I just think it's, it's very act. I don't know if you could have like too deep of, or too, you know, like bold of stories because you are collecting eight different characters each with different kind of genres, sure. each with different needs, and you have to carry them all in your head at the same time. And by having it be like really, really tropey, but still well written, like the dialogue and the characters are still really fun to be around. Um, I, I think that's kind of the only way that this could work. Um, otherwise, you would just be at a loss. How? Um, what happens? Like, does the story of the individual characters change if you've like, let's say, gotten a few people? before getting them i so that first chapter doesn't change the first chapter when you like so like when i'm playing as a chet and i get to the city and i meet throne for the first time and the game's like hey do you want to play throne's introductory oh i see so it just like kind of jumps back to their origin story basically Exactly. And yeah, then they join your party once you've completed that chapter. And then you, again, you're like just back into like exploring the world. Yeah. Um, the other thing here is uh, the part that I, I'm the most shocked by is I just do not have any love for turn-based combat. And th- this has gotten me to do a 180 on it. And I think, I think there are a few reasons. One, the speed is just very, very, very fast. Um, it has this clever thing, both I believe in fighting and in dialogue where it has like a pause button, a play button and a fast forward button. And if it's fast forward, the game runs at double speed. If it's play, it automatically goes from one line of dialogue or one fight to the next. Yeah. And if it's pause, it stops between things to give you time. And it's like a very simple UI thing, but it works so well at allowing me to kind of create my own pace. Um, 
And then in terms of combat, you it has a break system, which I believe is in the first game where each enemy has various weaknesses and you try different attacks on them to figure out what that weakness is. And once you've struck gold, like say, oh, arrows are a weakness, every time you come in contact with that enemy, it'll have like a little arrow box underneath it to let you know, hey, you, you can try that. It also has empty boxes. So if it has like one arrow box filled and then three empty boxes, you know there are still three weaknesses that you haven't found. Oh, sure, yeah. And once you find that weakness and you cause a break, it basically like stammers them and yep. then they or stuns them. They can't attack you. And that's when you just unleash like all holy hell from all of your enemies or from your 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 characters. I could like I could go even deeper into it, but I know we don't usually go like too hardcore into the mechanics. But needless to say, it feels like you feel like a badass whenever you go hard on characters yeah the system sounds similar to the break system in fire emblem where you could like basically once you counter them directly you have like a huge advantage in the fight and it makes you feel like very smart every turn you also get uh like basically a point or a check that you can collect up to i think like five um and then when you decide to spend those you are basically doubling or tripling or quadrupling your attack um yeah so you build them up and then wait for the break and then get the break and then deliver like a 5x attack plus it's a special plus it's on their weakness and suddenly you go from dealing you know 30 damage like 800 yeah um it just feels so good i i i i cannot believe it i do i think i will finish it almost certainly not because i have so much trouble finishing games and there's so much there's so much stuff coming out over the next few months but what i'll say is like i i keep going back to it each evening even if it's just for a little bit because i really 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 like spending time in the world and i really want to meet the rest of the characters um like my kind of goal is to at minimum you know meet most of if not all the characters before i put it down um it's great i i don't know if you will like it. I like I said, I can't believe that I like it this much. Um, but if you if you're a listener and you like these types of games, if you like a really talky RPGs, you like turn based combat, you should absolutely give it a try. Um, if you're curious about it, I think there's a demo. Um, there is a demo. On, on Switch and Steam. And I would recommend giving that a shot. Um because yeah, I, I, it, it, it's really, really neat. And I would it would be a shame for it to get lost on people's general to-do list this year um, because so far it rivals anything else I've played. Um, I actually didn't year. realize it was on Steam. I remember the first one was exclusive to, squ- uh, to Switch for a while. Yeah. So I, I didn't realize it was on Steam. That's cool. Yeah, I think it's on all... I think it's on Xbox and PlayStation 2, I think. Oh. Um, yeah, but yeah, it 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 is absolutely great. Um and it will definitely be a game I talk about more throughout the year. Cool. Um anything else? Should should we talk about GDC? And is that is that something people did, care did about? Did you learn anything exciting apart from the Kirby news? I mean, I learned a lot about AI. People Oh yeah. People are like freaking out about it. Um I did see one of the coolest um, demos that I've ever seen. Did I tell you separate from the show about the Square Enix AI demo I saw? No, w- dude, it was wild. Um, okay, so I there is a panel that was like some one person from Square Enix, and um, they were going to do a, a a talk about how they use neural learning and generated text to write RPG dialogue and content. I was like, that tracks. Oh. Yeah, I was like, I, I got to go here. Like, <laughs> this is going to be the most controversial thing in the planet. You know, we're yeah. going to have clicks for days at oldpolygon.com. And I go in, and it's like a pretty small lecture hall, and it's only like a third full. And now I'm really feeling it. I'm like, great, no competition. I'm going to get the scoop. So then lights go uh, down or whatever, panel starts, and this really young guy um, walks on stage, and he's like, hey, I'm really sorry, you know, English is not my first language. Um, I'm, I'm going to do my best to uh, communicate, you know, how this stuff works. And, uh, of course, then proceeds to explain it than anybody I know who uh, speaks English 
has ever done. Yeah. Um, he's like, I, yeah, I, I'm very young. I, um, I graduated with a PhD in 2021. I've been at Square Enix for like a year. Uh, I have like a very small team of like, I don't know, seven or something. Um, and uh, here's a game. And then just turns on a game. I thought this was going to be like a theoretical talk. He turns on a detective, like visual novel. And the, te- the detective's talking to another detective. And like, you it, you know, you see the little 2D version of the character on the screen. He's like, hey, you know, like, what's up? You know, where where do you think this murder is? And the detective's like, oh, I think it's near the water. And then your character's like, oh, do you think it's near the, the docks? And the other one's like, Oh, uh, it probably near the docks, or but I don't know if it'd near, be near the water. There's only like one factory there that anybody actually works at. It's like stuff like that, right? Sure. And then your character's like, "Oh yeah, hey, by the way, detective, do you like video games?" And he's like, "Oh yeah, I like these types of games." And it's like, "Well, that was weird." And then he's like, "The the the guy giving this presentation pauses it. And he's like, yeah, all of that was me.'" typing in a keyboard directly to him. None of those were like prompts that I was selecting. And also that yeah. wasn't a video that was live. Yeah. Um, and I was like, oh, whoa, that's nuts. And what he goes on to explain, and I, I'm going to do my best here to keep it as simple <laughs> as possible, is this, he's like, Square Enix writes the best stories. We don't want to get rid of excellent storytelling and excellent writing. That's not what I'm here to do. I am here to solve one problem that has driven me bonkers forever, which is I never want to hear the same thing twice in an RPG. Oh, sure. You know, when you prompt somebody that you're not just going to keep getting them being like, oh, sure, it's nice to be at the tea shop over and over and over again. So he's like, so what are you buying? <laughs> yes. What are you selling? <laughs> Thank you. Even so though like, I so- actually love that one. Not that that's Square Enix, but... <laughs> You nailed it, too. It sounded Thank you. just like it. Um, so he's like, okay, here's how it works. We write a story. You know, we we create a scenario for this game. You could maybe even create specific dialogue that you want or um, character bios or or anything. But you create all of this information of what the story is with human writing. Um, and in the game... You could be talking to, the, say, this detective character, and you could give him your prompt. And if that prompt relates in any way to the story, yeah, it will He's say, gonna fold Great, it back. Perfect. Loop it back. Here's we have yeah. all the stuff. Perfect. We can feed you into the story, or we can guide you back into it. Um, but if say you ask the the game, like, hey, you know, detective, what's your favorite um, video game? Pizza. It says. Well, yeah. What's your favorite pizza? It says, well, here's the character bio, and here's what we know of the game so far, and here's what we know of the character's consistency so far in Mushroom Pineapple. Sure. And then it feeds you original dialogue and ideally stores that and starts building a revised character sheet. So the the intention is not to get rid of video game writers at all. In fact, the way it was like presented, it sounds like you would need more writers because you'll need so much more scenario and character Bible writing effectively. But the world will be more fleshed out. So in, in a sense, it's almost like um, taking the idea of like open world spontaneity and moving it into the text part and the dialogue part of video games. It's interesting because the game that you're describing basically doesn't really exist anymore, which is to say like, games where you actually type a prompt in like this was in the early days of like text-based adventure games like uh hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy and stuff like that you could type in whatever you wanted and if the game knew you know if it was hard programmed to know what you were saying it would have a response that was contextually appropriate but here i mean these those games don't like you're picking from even in you know, much loved games like uh, fallout new vegas you're picking from four different choice like options so that I love that you mentioned that because that was how he ended the panel was showing those old games, those old yeah. boss games. And he was he 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 basically said these were great ideas. Like this is some of the best type of gaming that we could have. It's so open-ended and so imaginative and and truly creates a sense of role playing. But the technology wasn't there for it. And yeah. that it, it didn't fade because it was a bad type of game. It faded because y- you 
you kept getting the same answers or you felt like- Well, you and it didn't a, scale, right? Like yeah, it you didn't scale. do the infinite number of responses. So the second that you get like a bad response from one of your questions- It breaks. Or it breaks and, and you're like, oh, okay, I realize I can see the magic trick now. But obviously yes. if there's infinite number of responses, that gets more interesting. I still don't think, especially as we see chat GPT mm-hmm. struggling to like, say what date it is or what one plus one equals i don't i don't think it's ready now but it certainly has some interesting impacts in the future i also think it has interesting impacts in you know as you were describing it about like hearing the same thing over and over again it wasn't so much like being able to type in whatever i wanted and get a response it was more like you know i made a joke about the resident evil 4 vendor but all vendors like invariably like if you're running through and it's like a generic npc they're you know you're gonna talk to them and they're gonna say one thing and they're gonna keep saying it every time you hit a but the game knows more or less the the idea of what they're trying to say and theoretically an ai could like come up with a hundred varieties of that thing without a human being knowing it now obviously there are cultural implications to an ai doing that that you know potentially take work away from uh, narrative designers uh, doing that stuff. Uh, but it's, you know, stuff that as we're seeing, like all game developers are exploring this stuff because it allows for scale in ways that weren't previously possible. It also allows for like a million different errors to come up that weren't yeah. previously possible. Yeah. So it's, it is very interesting. W- what surprised me was how many narrative designers, like working people in this industry, were not as freaked out about it, um, like in, in that way of like job stealing, right? That a, a number of people that I spoke with, um, that that Ubisoft um, has a you know a AI tool effectively for it, its narrative team. Like, no, a tool is the perfect word. It's really helpful with ideation. You're right. It is not good at doing what I do well. Yeah. But it is good at doing this like really basic thing, like helping me get some prompts that would take me days of just bashing my head against the wall. I can just look through all these prompts that it comes up with of like, hey, what type of character? Give me a hundred different characters <laughs> to like right. think about. And then I find one that I like and then I turn it into something like, you know, beautiful and rich and artistic. Sure. Well, the, I think the concern is not so much that it would replace all human jobs, but a job that would previously require, let's say, 20 narrative designers could theoretically be done with maybe five narrative designers because the productivity dramatically increases, if not the quality. So I think that's the concern, which is legitimate. Like, obviously, there are issues there. Um, And But yeah, again, I don't think we can totally turn a blind eye to it because unlike crypto, there's like direct... You know, we're already actually seeing the impact on society. It's not just a money-making scheme. So, yeah, yeah, it is a very weird, interesting, scary, exciting, I don't know, thing. You kind of have to carry, like, two very different feelings at the same time when talking about it or thinking about it, right? Like, a mix of, like, oh, this could be really good and, oh, this could end the world (laughs) and take all of our jobs. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, the GDC was good. That was probably the thing that was most interesting. Um, do you, do you have any other recommendations before we wrap up? Mm, you should watch Succession. It's a great show. It's back for its final season. If you haven't watched it, even though you've probably heard people talking about it, uh, it's a delight. It's, it's incredibly well-written, incredibly sharp, uh, amazingly well-acted. Um, it's, it's the show that I get most excited about when it's on. Uh, and I haven't really had this feeling since probably breaking ba- or I guess better call Saul. Um, so it's, it's filled a nice void in my life and it's great. Nice. Um, my recommendation is a movie called the tarnished angels, which is like a 1950s, I think late fifties movie, um, starring rock Hudson and Robert Stack and Dorothy Malone. Um, but here's why you should check it out. It's about, uh, competitive plane racing (laughs) like it's set in the 30s back when people would just straight up race planes um you know very 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 close to the ground and around three pylons uh and it sure looks like they filmed this using real planes and they they raced 
planes, which is wildly dangerous. The result is some of the most bonkers stunts I have ever seen in a movie. And it's deeply weird to watch um, a movie from the 50s that is based on a William Faulkner uh, story and uh, to kind of go into it unsure of what it is and then uh, see stunts where you y- y- they would be illegal if they tried to film them today. They look utterly terrifying. Um, it's awesome. It's It's not an action movie it is very much kind of a soapy drama but uh it's fun it's like an hour and a half and yeah the action is just absolutely incredible uh it's funny you mentioned william faulkner because i just last week watched the long hot summer which came out around the same time based on a william faulkner uh series of short stories and that was also like very soapy but like fucking bonkers weird and uh, that that yeah. is like a wild cast too, right? It's like yeah, Paul, Newman and, uh, and Paul Newman's like breakout role. Orson Welles is in it. Angela Lansbury is in it. Joanne Woodward. It's a very, uh, but it's also very much of its time. Like it's hammy and ridiculous. And but all that said, holy shit, Paul Newman has it going on in that movie. I get why it was his breakout role. Those baby blues do not stop for days. Oh yeah, I I just looked up and the it's just him in a a white tank top. Yeah, they put in him sweat. in some some real outfits, and it is a hot summer. Let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's been the, our, our our reviews of movies from 1957 and 1958. If you want more of these, we're here every other week. <laughs> um, anything else before we wrap? No, I think we did it. Cool. Well, this has been another episode of The Resties. My name is Christopher Thomas Plant. Your name is... Russ Frustick. And we're The Resties, where the rest of the best discuss the best of the rest. We'll see you next time. Resties! Resties.